Well, if you have not done so, please take your Bibles, your devices, and turn to Romans 7. Yes, we are back in Romans, my brothers and sisters in Christ. I have been looking forward to this moment. I have thoroughly enjoyed the last two months of jumping around different uh, texts and different topics through Christmas and the new year. Well, we are back into our study in Romans. But having taken a two-month reprieve, we do need to take just about maybe 10-15 minutes to get our minds back engaged into where we're at in Romans. So, uh, one helpful tool I think would be on the back of your handout, if you could look at the bottom of this handout, you're going to see a basic outline. This is our journey through Romans. Um, this might help to be a guide as we get back into this study, jump back in with both feet. Um, what's going on in Romans? In just a minute, we're going to jump into Romans 7, but there's a lot of stuff that's happened before we get to Romans 7. When you think of the book of Romans, you have to, you really have to understand that we are being immersed, we are being saturated in this, the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. This is the good news, my friends. This is a book about the good news and how, as we've talked, the good news of Jesus Christ means more than just bringing us into relationship with God. It means sustaining us in our relationship with God. That is the gospel. If you'll remember, back in Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17, we interacted with this wonderful theme, these key verses, where Paul says this, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the what? It is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes. And who is this everyone? To the Jews first, chronologically, but also to the Greeks. By it. Or in it, the righteousness of God has been revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the just shall live by faith. And that launches us into a wonderful study with some key truths. And quick reminder, what are some of these key truths? Well, if you remember back to verse, chapters 1 through 3, we interacted with this very ugly word. Condemnation. This is the bad news that leads us to the good news. The fact of the matter is, in the Scripture, we find clearly this teaching that because of sin, all human beings deserve condemnation and need a rescuer. Very, very, very clearly stated in chapters 1-3 through three of Romans. But then we come to a beautiful word, and that is the word justification. In chapters 3-5, to five, we meditated on this wonderful truth. What is the truth? That through Jesus Christ, sinners can be declared righteous. They can now have a right standing before a holy God. That is justification. It is this declaration of righteousness and what are the terms of justification? Clearly aligned in the Scriptures. Clearly exposed in the Scriptures. Justification comes by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. That is the only way to have a right standing before a holy God. By grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. 
But then we ran into this thought. Now what? All right, Pastor, I understand I have been condemned because of my sin, but praise God for justification. I now have a right standing before God. Now what? My friends, that is the subject of sanctification. Chapter 6 through 8. Seamlessly flowing from justification, we find this concept of sanctification. This is another beautiful word. What is sanctification? Again, if you look on your handout right above the outline, you'll find some basic definitions that we've been tagging ourselves to. Sanctification in a technical sense, it means to be set aside for a purpose. Oh, this is so good. Why did God Almighty reach down into the depraved world and rescue you? It is for a purpose. What is this purpose? We find this exposed all the way through this, the rest of this book, really, but these next couple chapters. To be sanctified means to be set aside for a purpose. It is to be consecrated. Uh, several in here might know it as this definition. To be made holy. Yes, you are standing in the presence of God as holy and righteous based on the merit of Jesus Christ. But now, it is this progression of day-in, day-out battle with sin. And as Christ grows you in holiness every single day. And that really is the next definition you find on the back of that handout. In a very theological sense, it is the process of spiritual growth. By which all true believers are progressively consecrated away from sin and towards Christ-likeness. All right, Pastor Andrew, that was a lot of words. Can you just make that practical? (laughs) Sure. Let's try. Here is sanctification, my friends. It is the all-out battle every single day by God's grace for personal purity and holiness. It is the growth that we go through every single day. The joy of being Jesus' people and growing in that fact. This is a battle against temptations of the old you. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life. The addictions, the propensities to the flesh, the temptations of the old you. These temptations will distract you from the true joys of being a child of God. That is sanctification. Now so far, if you're tracking, you're tracking? We're on the same page here. Condemnation, justification, sanctification. But now as it's being exposed, and I really want to just dial quickly into this. What about this sanctification have we talked about? Because we need to remember this stuff as we head into chapter 7. What about this sanctification? Well, we talked about sanctification's foundation in verses 1 through 5 of chapter 6. What is the foundation? It is your new identity in Christ. It is our eternal union with Christ. As Paul says in another book, Galatians chapter 2, I have been crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I still live. Every day I get out of bed, right? 
But it's not me. It's Christ living in me. My brothers and sisters in Christ, this is the foundation of our growth. That it is not you. It is Christ in you. That leads us to a proper mindset in sanctification. Where where do we go to set our minds right in this sanctification process? We are to count ourselves as dead to sin and alive to Christ every single day. Dead to sin and alive to Christ. Reminding ourselves of our foundation, leading us to the fact that there is actually to be effort in our sanctification. There's this false theory that somehow sanctification and the work that God's done in people's lives, this grace that we've been part of, leads someone to just sit back and be like, wow, that's really cool. And to do nothing. My friends, that is not the relationship exposed in the Scriptures sanctification really does demand day in, day out effort in the life of every single believer. We have not been saved, as we say often, to sit our backsides on the couch and say, wow, this is really cool. We are saved for a purpose, my friends. And we saw this exposed in verses 11 through 13 of Romans 6. And here's how this effort is particularly seen. We are to present ourselves every day not as weapons of unrighteousness, but as weapons for righteousness. And I love that. Leading us to this rationale, the logic and the reasoning behind this sanctification. What is this rationale? Well, verses 14 through 23, we find that we are to consider ourselves to be slaves of righteousness. Not slaves of sin, but slaves of righteousness every single day. My friends, we, and and I love this because we just sing free, free, forever, we're free. Yes! What a wonderful fact. We have been freed from sin. But my brothers and sisters in Christ, this is the beauty of this rationale. You have been freed from the slavery of sin in order to, by God's grace, become a slave of righteousness. That's in the text. When you think about our relationship with God, we're not just free to do whatever we want. No, we are free to be a slave of God by His grace and His righteousness. All right. We all on the same page now? We just went through a lot of stuff. So good job. A lot of wide open eyes, but praise God, not yet a lot of uh, closed eyes. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to launch into Romans 7 today. We're going to start a two-week discussion on this. The conflict in sanctification. There's a battle a raging. And what does this look like? Well, I love by God's grace how the Apostle Paul so clearly exposes this conflict. And this is so good. If I could just say this from the onset. Sometimes in theology, we like to patty cake around the bad stuff, the tough stuff. You understand what I mean? Hey, let's just talk about, well, you might understand what I mean, your best life now. You can do it all and just be joy, joy, joy all over the place. Live on this mountaintop all the time. You know what I love about the scriptures is it's real. 
Okay, when you get up on Monday morning, you're in Romans 7 conflict. When you turn on your radio on the car, in the car on the way to work, you're in the conflict of Romans 7. Even before you get there and you go to the coffee maker and all the coffee's gone. Romans 7 abounds. That conflict's real every single day. So what I love about this story and the, and the story that's advancing through this gospel is the gospel is sufficient not just to get us to live this joy, 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 joy life all the time. It is real for the conflict that we face every day. You know what I'm talking about. That's Romans 7. We're going to start into this by looking at this key truth. Back to the front of your handouts if you're following that in any way. Yes, at the top. <laughs> Key truth is this. As they grow in their relationship with God, true believers should seriously consider the source of their conflict with sin. This is something we need to con really consider and understand. What is the source of this conflict I'm going through? My friends, this is a legitimate question that we cannot ignore in our walk with Jesus. And here's the question. I came to Christ in saving faith. Yes, God changed my heart. Why do I still struggle with that addiction? Why do I still struggle with those words? Why do I struggle with that anger? Why those nagging thoughts? Didn't God Almighty through His Spirit change my heart? Well, why do I struggle so badly to obey God? Maybe you're there right now. Because I'm pretty sure this is just not a testament of your pre preaching pastor. Because that is me. Every day. Struggling. Battling by God's grace to obey God Almighty. Well... What Romans 7 is about is us realizing there's a source to this. The natural conclusion we might be tempted to come up with is this. Either, and follow me here, either God's plan is broke or our ability to comply to God's plan is broke. We can't just, we, we, we can't do it. Why? Because I got up in the morning and I struggled all day long. Something's broke. Either God's plan's broke or my ability to comply is broke. Well, we're going to follow that argument through Romans chapter 7 because here's Paul's answer. Well, really, uh, neither. God's plan most assuredly is not broken. Okay, that's the first part of Romans 7 that we're going to look at today. You and I cannot blame God for our struggles with sin. We're going to talk about that in just a minute. Well then, the other one is, what about my ability to obey? Is that broken? Well, honestly, your ability to obey God as a new covenant believer is not broken. However, and this is a, how, a big however, the conflict comes when we somehow think we are expected and capable of doing this on our own. Catch that. 
That is Romans 7. When we somehow think we are capable to take one single step in our spiritual lives on our own, or if we think we're expected to take one single step on our own. My friends, that's what's broken. When we think we can do it on our own, that's what's broken. That is the beauty of where we're going to get in Romans chapter 7. The biblical fact is this. You cannot do this sanctification thing on your own strength. You can't. You cannot perfectly obey God's righteous demands. You cannot grow spiritually. You cannot battle your flesh on your own. So, as we approach Romans 7, we must remember that, we must remember this too, in a very practical way. Romans 7 was written how many years ago? <laughs> like, literally, we need to remember this. Practically. 2,000 years ago, right? Give or take. 2,000 years ago, this is being written to a group of believers. This is being written to a group of believers, if you remember in your scriptures, that are heavenly influenced by the Jewish constituency in their congregation. What do I mean? First century believers who their whole life they've interacted with a sanctification based on what? The Old Testament of scriptures. The law. Every time they think about their relationship with God, it's taking them back to the law. Do you understand what I'm talking about? The first five books of your Bible, this is the Mosaic Law, God's designations of worship for His people. So if you're a first century believer, you don't have all of this writing that we have on our laps right now. You want to grow in Christ, so what are you naturally going to think about doing? Well, let's go back to the Old Testament and let's think about this. Let's think about how we're going to grow in sanctification based on God's law. But there's a massive problem. Why? Because what is the purpose of the law in the Old Testament? To prove to you that you can't do it. So then what do we do? So the argument in Romans chapter 7 might, and put your thinking caps on, it might be something like this. So Paul, we have come to Christ in saving faith. We have now been justified not by our works, not by our adherence to God's law given to Moses, but by grace alone, through faith alone, in the perfect Christ alone. However, Paul, man, we're struggling with sin. What's the problem, Paul? Paul, we know God hates sin, and we are not to continue in sin, but, man, how does this thing work? How do we do this? Hey, Paul, you know we have Jewish roots, right? I mean, we're talking about these people that might be interacting with Paul. You know we have Jewish roots, right? You are well aware that through the Old Testament Scriptures, sanctification was lived out by meticulous adherence to the law of Moses. Do we still do that, Paul? Or maybe, Paul, catch this, maybe, Paul, God's law is faulty. Maybe it just didn't work. Furthermore, Paul, if God's law isn't working in our journey of faith, is it possible that God himself failed because his law wasn't good enough to keep us from sin? 
Do you see how they're trying to connect the dots here? Something is just not right here, Paul. There's got to be a problem with God's law, God's plan, or God's person, me. There's, something's broke. So it is with that mindset that we enter into Romans 7. My friends, this is not an easy passage to wrap your mind around, and I'm going to encourage you to take this home and dig in this week. But we're going to give it our best shot this morning. We're going to take the next uh, 25 minutes or so and dig into what we have here in this passage. Let us look at Romans chapter 7, and rather than reading all the way through the chapter, which is really good to do, I'm going to take a couple of these verses and just kind of line out this theme that we just talked about, starting with this verse. Do, verse 1, do you not know, brothers, this is Paul talking to his brothers in Rome, do you not know, brothers, most likely his Jewish brothers and sisters, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives, and now we have a wonderful illustration here. For a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Let's just jump down to verse 6. This really is thematic in all of these verses. Verse 6. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit. This is so key in the entire discussion. And not in the old way of the written code. Verse 10. Let's skip down to verse 10. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. Verse 11, for sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me, and through it killed me. Verse 12, so the law is holy, and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Verse 13, did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me. That through what is good, in order that sin might be shown to be sin, and through the commandment might become sinful because, uh, beyond measure. And then I want to read a verse, we'll look at this next week, but this really shows us the conflict that Paul is designating here. Look with me at verse 24. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? I mean, if that doesn't say conflict, I don't know what does. And we're talking about one of the greatest minds in all of human history. A mind then now that has been directed by the Holy Spirit of God. One of the greatest theologians that you'll ever even interact with. We're talking about the Apostle Paul. And what is the Apostle Paul saying? Wretched man that I am. Who will deliver me from this body of death. Okay, so do you see there's a conflict going on? <laughs> and so Paul in Romans 7 is dialing in on the source of this conflict. Why does this conflict happen? In Romans 7, in the first part of Roman, 
Romans 8, Paul makes two clear points, and this is what we're going to talk about the next two weeks. First point that we're going to talk about today is this. The source of sanctification's conflict is not God's holy law. You can't blame God's holy law for your conflict today. And then what we'll look at next week, log this back in your mind because this will be part two of our discussion. The source of sanctification conflict is man's remaining sinful flesh. And that carries us into Romans chapter 8. So let's start with this one today. Everybody here completely confused yet? I hope not. Let's dial in on this key thought. The source of sanctification is, sanctification's conflict is not God's holy law. Okay, let's start with this question. Have you ever noticed how prone we are to blame something or someone for our own problems? Honestly, a problem in your life, what are we prone to do? Find someone or something to blame. I mean, that is rampant in the culture we live in right now. A struggle that I'm having, I'm going to find someone or something to blame. This, there seems to be a massive hint of this happening in Romans chapter 7. What do I mean? Since the new covenant believer continues to daily struggle against sin, maybe God's law is to be blamed. And even in a broader aspect, God's plan and God... God, it's your fault. We see an evidence of that even in James chapter 1. Paul's emphatic answer is no. <laughs> Don't ever, 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 ever say it that way. Our struggle with sin is not because God's law is deficient or God's plan has failed. Please understand that. Your struggle today and tomorrow and the next day with sin is not because God Almighty has failed you. Please understand that. And that is the argument that we enter into with the discussion in the rest of these verses. So there's two basic reasons that Paul gives to this congregation in Rome. Here's the first basic reason that it's not God's law to blame. Here it is. Through Christ, true believers have actually been released from the bondage of the law. You can't blame the law because you're released from its bondage. I love this. Um, simply this. We cannot blame God's Old Testament law because through Christ's payment on the cross and our union with Christ, our personal efforts are no longer to be eternally judged by God's holy law. Why? Because Jesus took those to the cross with him. He nailed them to the cross. Let's see how Paul explains this. Let's go just through verses 1 through 6. Reminding ourselves that believers have been released from the bondage of the law. Verse 1. Do you not know, brothers, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that, there is, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives? Okay, in other words, you are not obligated to obey the law if you are dead. And now a very important metaphor. Verse 2. 
For a married woman is bound by the law to her husband while he lives. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, verse 3, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law, and if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. So, what's Paul saying? Here's what he's saying. Something binding, we're talking about a marriage, has ceased to be binding because a death occurred. Uh, So we don't want to overcomplicate this. Something binding has ceased because a death occurred. And now Paul makes it very very applicable to believers. Here it is, verse 4. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ, so that you may uh, belong to another to him who has been raised from the dead in order that we may bear fruit to God. Oh, this is so good. You following here? Here it is. The obligation of the old law, the old covenant, was fulfilled by what? The death of Jesus Christ on the cross. So that believers can now bear fruit in the new covenant through the Holy Spirit of God. Verse 5. By the way, I told you some of this is a little confusing, didn't I? (laughs) Verse 5, For while we were living in the flesh, so while we were unsaved, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But, verse 6, this is very important, now we are released from the law, the Old Testament law, having died to that which held us captive so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. What what did we just read? Here's what we read. God's Old Testament law cannot be blamed for our current struggles and sin because, just as we've already seen in chapter 5, verse 20, I put that on the back, and chapter 6, verse 14, through Christ's gracious payment and through the indwelling holy spirit true believers have been released from the condemning bondage of the old law it no longer can stare you at the face and say i got you we've been released from the condemning bondage of that old testament law for clarification's sake we must realize this though This is not talking about freedom from any or all Old Testament moral expectations from God's Word. That is not what this is saying. But this is talking about the fact that we have been released from the liability and penalty of perfect personal compliance to God's law. If you don't follow God's law, God is not going to look at you and say, you don't meet up to that standard. My friends, again, this is not reason to blame God. And I I believe that's what's happening in Romans 7. God, you're at fault for my struggles. This is not room to blame God for our struggles. My friends, as we look at this text, this is reason, catch this, to rejoice in God. We rejoice in God. Why? Because Christ has fulfilled all of the obligations of the Old Testament law for us. 
And then number two, I love this. The Holy Spirit fulfills all the requirements of the law in us. This is so good. Christ fulfilled the law for us. The Spirit fulfills the law in us. This is room to rejoice. Can I I just jump ahead? Because this gets deep. But can I just jump ahead to Paul's response? Remember we just read Romans chapter uh, 7, verse 24. Wretched man that I am. Let's see if I put this on here. Here it is. Let's just jump ahead to this. This is the end of this passage. This is where we're headed. Wretched man that I am. Who will deliver me from this body of death? And Paul says this. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. My brothers and sisters in Christ, I cannot wait to get to heaven to see a replay of Paul writing this. As the Holy Spirit of God worked in his life and Paul is overwhelmed with his own deficiency and his response through the Holy Spirit is, thanks be to God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And then we run into chapter 8 and here it is. There is therefore now some condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus? No! My friends, there is no condemnation by the law to those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. That's what Paul's saying. You can't blame the law because you've been released from the law. Let's go to the next reason. Again, you might have to dig a little deeper into that one in your life groups. Reason number two. Why can I not blame God for my struggles with sin and God's plan and God's law? Here it is. The law has actually served and is serving its intended purpose to expose sinful hearts. Simply enough. Why did God give us the law? Well, I think Paul very clearly says that in the next couple verses. Would you look with me at verse 7? Why did God give us the law then? Verse 7 says this, What shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means! Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, You shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. Verse 9, I was once alive apart from the law. Um, Basically, Paul did not truly understand the law. He thought he could do it. But when the commandment came, and he clearly sees this, Sin came alive and I died. (laughs) I realized I was dead. Verse 10, the very commandment that promised life, theoretically promising God's favor for eternal life, proved to be death to me. Verse 11, for sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. Verse 12, so the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Verse 13, did that which is good, the law, then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me 
through what is good in order that sin may be shown to be sin. And through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. Okay, so what is this? Just in case all the way through the epistles we miss this, Paul is again revealing the purpose of God's law. What is the purpose of God's law in the Old Testament? What is the purpose of that? It is this, to unquestionably expose sinful hearts. You can't do it. I can't do it. Collectively, we can't do it. So sinful hearts need a sinless Savior. My friends, that's the purpose of the law. So the conclusion, I believe what Paul is saying here is you cannot blame the law for our sin because it is simply doing its job. <laughs> it's showing you that you can't do it. Um, I love this because what does the law of God do? It sets the standard and exposes the deficiency. That is not that is not atypical to how we do life. Think of this. What does the law of God do in the Old Testament? It sets a standard for God's holiness and exposes the deficiency. How foolish would it be for the framing contractor who accidentally cuts a short stud to get mad at his tape measure for not giving him the number he wanted? Why? It's not the tape measure's fault. It is simply showing him the proper standard and exposing the deficient materials. Do you understand what I'm saying? Don't blame God's holy law. Look deep inside you and see that sin is to blame. We cannot, we cannot get mad at the law for magnifying the already present propensities in our sin-stained hearts. Let's just think about it. Make this practical. If you're like me, I'm looking through this text and my mind is blowing gaskets. <laughs> Whoa, this is some good stuff, but this is some rich and deep stuff. Okay, let's just make this practical. How foolish would it be for a gemologist to blame the microscope for revealing the blemish in the diamond? <laughs> that stupid microscope. I need to get a different microscope. No, the problem is not with the microscope. Do you understand? You're following. The problem is with... The blemish in the diamond. In the cosmetology world, how foolish would it be for the teen girl to get mad at the magnifying mirror for revealing blemishes on her face? Let's just make it real. That stupid mirror! That's not the mirror's fault. Or the midlife model to get mad at the same magnifying mirror for revealing the growing age lines. Stupid mirror! You don't get mad at the revealing, at the, one, the thing that exposes it. In mechanics, how foolish would it be for the mechanic to blame that magnifying glass that finally allowed him to see the crack in the engine block? You don't get mad at the magnifying glass. That, that's not what is to blame. And that's what Paul is saying in here. Don't get mad at God and His law because all it's doing is exposing and setting a standard. God's holy law cannot be blamed for revealing the already present propensities of the sin-stained heart, tainted heart. Okay, so what? 
we are not first century Jewish believers whose entire lives were driven by compliance to the Mosaic law. I don't think any of us here are in that boat. Well, particularly because we're not in the first century, but maybe you think you are. But we are in the 21st century, and we are believers who still struggle with the same proud propensities of our flesh. We struggle. We still have the proud tendencies to try to live out sanctification on our own strength. Seriously. We get up in the morning, we got this. I can do it. I'm not going to express this anger. Not one time throughout the entire day. I am resolved. And then you slam your finger in the door. <laughs> Didn't work. This week, I'm not going to one time give in to this addiction. I got this, I got this, I got this. First time you turn on your phone or your computer. First time you interact with somebody. You, you understand what I'm saying? This is real. So when you look at what's happening here, it's a temptation to depend on me. Depend on, uh, really depend on my preconceived abilities to live for God. You fail to remember that that addiction, that anger, those words, that post, that search, way down deep, that temptation... It's not to be blamed on God. God's plan is defective somehow because I'm struggling with this. My brothers and sisters in Christ, so what? I think we have to interact with this. In your personal struggles with sin this week, will you acknowledge that God's plan has not failed you? (laughs) It's such a temptation. God hasn't failed you because you've sinned. Because you're struggling with this. God is not the one to blame. God's word is not to blame. God's plan for your life is not deficient. That is not where we had with the struggle of sin. Furthermore, in my struggle with sin, here's the conclusion that we are to go to. Not blame God, but rejoice in God. What do I mean? God is not to be blamed because God is the one who provided the rescuer and the comforter. This is so good. God cannot be blamed. He's the one that provided the rescue. I mean, this is exactly what James says in James chapter 1. Why would the God of all lights, the one that doesn't move, the God, the Father, the good Father, why would He put in your life something to make you fall like this? Do you understand what I'm talking about? Don't blame God for your sin. Blame the flesh that is inside you, that you battle with His power. So when we think about what's happening to battle here, what do we battle? We rejoice that God has provided a rescuer and a comforter. What about this rescuer? My friends, this is Jesus Christ who has conquered sin in order to save you, not simply from the what? The penalty of sin, but also from the power and eventual presence of sin. That is Jesus. So instead of blaming God somehow for what's happening in your struggle, praise God for a sufficient rescuer. But then not just that. Here's where this is leading, and we're going to find ourselves here in Romans 8 in this. Praise God for a sufficient 
comforter. The Holy Spirit. This comforter permanently indwells you and he is battling with and for you. What is the work of the Spirit in your life today and tomorrow and the next day? The Spirit of God is convicting you with the Word of God saying, don't do that. Don't do that. And then when you do that, then what is the Spirit of God doing? The Word of God can guide you back. The Word of God forgives. This is so cool. So don't blame God. Rejoice that God has provided for each and every one of you the rescuer and the comforter. And so we can find ourselves, my brothers and sisters in Christ, resounding what Paul says in verse 25. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law and the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. My friends, as we grow in our relationship with God, let us realize that God's law God's plan, God's word are not to be blamed. Come back next week as we finish Romans 7 and identify then what is the true source of our conflict with sin. So thank you, God, for these words. Thank you for who you are. Thank you for your perfectly sufficient plan of sanctification. God, as is the case we find in the first book of the Bible, Genesis, wanting to blame and question you, oh God, I pray that we would not do that in our own sanctification. That we would realize that you, the good Father, are not the one to be blamed. You are not the one that has failed us. Oh God, I pray that we would remember that every day this week. My friends here today, these are not concepts that we cannot wrap our minds around by God's grace. Simple fact is you will struggle today and tomorrow with that remaining flesh. Sure, our hearts have been changed, but we're still in this body. We still deal with temptations. My friends, as you deal with those temptations, will you run to a good father, not blame a good father? Will you run to his mercy and grace, the comfort of his spirit? There may be some here today, and I, I don't want to neglect this, that you are saying, Pastor, you said a lot of words the last 45 minutes. Now, that's true. <laughs> But I, I want to make this incredibly understandable and simple for every single one of us here. Here it is. We were born into this world as sinners in rebellion to God. And because of that sin, my friend, we are held accountable to God's holiness. Scripture is very clear that we are under condemnation because of that sin eternal condemnation in a place that the scripture very clearly calls hell. But my friend, God did not leave us without hope. That is where our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ comes into the picture. 
Jesus Christ, the perfect God-man, went to the cross to pay for our sins. My friend, today, if you have never come to Jesus Christ in saving faith, would you put your faith and trust in Christ? Scripture says, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be rescued. Jesus Christ is the one that saves us from the penalty of sin. But my friends, Jesus Christ is the one that also guides us and saves us from the power of sin every single day. There's some of you in this room that have come to Jesus Christ in saving faith, and you're saying to me, Pastor, I'm still struggling. My friends, would you still every day go to this wonderful Savior for help? He is sufficient to guide you and to guard you. He is the one that promised His Spirit, the Comforter, to come and permanently indwell in every believer. If you have come to Jesus Christ in saving faith, His Spirit is in you, guiding you through this. This conflict and sanctification, would you praise God for His Spirit? So there's two basic groups of people here today. Those who have come to Jesus Christ in saving faith, those who have not come to Jesus Christ in saving faith, if you have never come to Jesus Christ in saving faith, I would implore you, let today be that day from young to old, come to Jesus Christ. At the close of this sermon, there will be chaplains at the front. There will be elders spread around. I'll be in the back. There will be people here that would love, anyone would love to show you more about this beautiful Savior and how to give your life to this Savior. Would you come to Jesus Christ today? So God, we thank you for the truths of this passage. The reality that we are still in conflict with sin every single day. But I pray, God, that we would, by your grace, not blame you and your plan and your word but that we would run to you as our gracious Father through times of need. That we would cling to the truths of your word and that we would depend on the guidance of the Holy Spirit as we are in conflict with sin. Thank you, thank you, thank you for the time we could spend today in your word. Let us now, as we close with this anthem of praise to you, let us go with hope and comfort an assurance that you are truly a good father. Again, I thank you for every single person that was here today for corporate worship, those listening online, those listening on the radio, and that you would help us to love you with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. It is in Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen.